The following is a message by Dr. Michael Horton of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Our meditation this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 17. Verses 17 through 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. In context here, Elijah Uh, has been sent to wicked Ahab to pronounce the curses of the covenant, to bring him face to face with the God uh, whose treaty he has violated, going behind the great king to form alliances with uh, other gods that are no gods. Essentially, what Ahab uh, has undertaken is a grand repaganization of Israel, the northern kingdom. And... uh, In this process of trying to seduce Israel to Baal worship, the very very idolatry that Israel pulled up, uh, rooted out, though imperfectly, uh, in its conquest, uh, he was aided and abetted by his wife Jezebel. And we read in verse 33 uh, of the previous chapter, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. And that's saying a lot, having read the history of the kings before him. We are amazed that he is the apex of that sad history. We see, first of all, in the opening verses of chapter 17, the Lord of Judgment. And there, is a, is a, uh, there are echoes here of the original Exodus conquest motif. Uh, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, says Elijah to Ahab, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And it's significant that he's telling Ahab, the one who has, like Solomon, built a temple, only this time to Baal, uh, it's significant that he tells Ahab that it will only be by his word that the drought uh, will cease. Because it was believed by the Canaanites that, that Baal, 
could be silenced by Mot, the god of death. And whenever it didn't rain, it was because Mot had things uh, under his thumb. He had, had uh, slain Baal, and then when Baal revived, it rained. So it's significant that right from the outset, even Yahweh's servant has more power over life and death, over rain and drought, than Baal himself. According uh, to this uh, religion, then, Baal was not the living God, and it's significant, I think, that, that the, the phrase, the living God, appears so often uh, in First and Second Kings. Because he, he is the one who is always alive. If there, is, if there is drought, it is not because Yahweh is absent in death, but because he's present in danger. He's present in, in, in curse. And that's exactly what's happening here. Yahweh is withholding rain by his word. He is present in judgment, not absent in death. And then the word comes to Elijah in verses 2 through 7. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerit, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerit, that is, the, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. There's a movement back and forth in this passage between God's word coming to Elijah and Elijah's word as God's word going out in judgment. Uh, here, God's word comes to Elijah. Elijah goes, but Yahweh goes with him, caring for Elijah, sending him to a brook, commanding the ravens to feed him. Sound familiar? The, 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 the rock in the wilderness with the water, uh, the, the uh, uh, provision uh, of manna in the wilderness. But unlike the children of Israel who said, okay, that was good. But what else can you do? This is a short menu. Uh, can he give us meat? Can he spread out a table in the wilderness? That kind of cynicism. Elijah believes. Elijah trusts God. And Elijah has not one meal a day. Remember where they gather the, meal, the, the manna once a day, except on the Sabbath. Now he, he's, he's cared for with two square meals a day, with meat and water and bread. God controls the ravens. Not just the drought, but the ravens. You remember Israel in Egypt having God's protection in the land of Goshen. So it's like as if you had the storm clouds all around, but a clear, beautiful day in the eye of the storm where the Jews lived. That's what's going on here with Elijah. God's word has left Israel. The tragedy. God's word has departed. His glory has departed from Israel the prophets have been slain. Elijah has been fleeing for his life. But Elijah is sent to the world of the Gentiles. And that's why the brook dries up. There's a reason for this, because God wants to keep him moving. God has other plans. 
This is the God who is never, uh, 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 never stands still. He's always on the move, marching toward his, his, his destiny, the destiny he has planned for us. As Yahweh demonstrated his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt through the plagues, now he asserts his reign over Israel and the entire region through this disaster. But he's also the Lord of grace. And uh, that's what's behind the mission to Sidon. There's a reason the brook has dried up. God's ready for Elijah to move again, and this time to Sidon. So he leaves. He, he leaves the holy land that is no longer holy. He himself is, in a sense, exiled, but in that exile is sent out to the nations. And here he is going to the heart of Baal worship, to Sidon. And he will return from this center of Baal worship to Israel to confront the prophets of Baal in Samaria, in Israel, at the very seat of Ahab himself. But first there's a widow, and it's kind of odd. It's Why this story in the middle of all of this? We were just kind of in the intrigue of, uh, of something big about to happen, and now there's this side story about Elijah and a widow. It's actually very significant. First of all, Elijah meets the widow at the gate, and it's a, it's a pitiful sight. She's gathering sticks to somehow boil or, or, or whatever to make into something to eat. This is the kind of starvation where... Uh, uh, Evidently, people look for anything that they can possibly fill their stomachs with, and that's what she was trying to do for herself and her her son. Elijah asks her to bring the last remnants of bread that she held in her hand to him. She swears by Yahweh, your God, that she only has a handful of flour left and a little oil in a jug, and that the sticks she's gathering are for what she expects to be the last meal for herself and her son. Elijah presses her, telling her to prepare from whatever she has left a little cake for him because he's the Lord's prophet. And then, he says, make something for yourself and your son. Seems heartless. (laughs) And yet, as in other events, such as the sacrifice of Isaac, there's more going on here than meets the eye. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. The Lord has the times and seasons in his hands. Life and death are in his hands. So ignoring her felt needs, this Gentile widow demonstrates more faith than the Israelites whom he had just left, especially the king and queen of Israel. There's something more important than her immediate needs and the immediate needs of her son, which were considerably greater than the ones we usually talk about. And the wisdom... Uh, sorry, and the widow went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So here's Israel starving while a Gentile widow is fed. 
jealousy for jealousy. The Lord says, if you will make me jealous by following after other gods, I will make you jealous by bringing in the Gentiles. Finally, he's the Lord of life. There's an, you know, verse 16 is a great place for an ending to this story. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. That's a great place to stop, and that's where, where we would probably stop as Americans. Uh, but it's not where it stops, of course. The passage that I read is, is, is obvious in that regard. The son became ill and died. Just when things were looking up. Now the widow could only imagine that Elijah's presence had brought God's attention to her house and therefore to her sins. Isn't that remarkable? Even though she may have gotten the theology wrong, that particular sins she had committed were responsible for this judgment brought on this house... At least she was thinking vertically. She was thinking in terms of her sin. Not manipulating Baal, but of sin before Elijah's God. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? Proud Jezebel from Sidon. Now queen of Israel will be destroyed while this humble widow, though a Gentile nobody, is seated at the heavenly table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a contest. It wasn't because of her sin. It was, it's because of the contest. You see, our stories are part of the larger story of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And she is now, she and her son are being brought into that larger story, that bigger headline than all of the the tragedies that befall us in our own narrow circumstances. No, it's a contest between Yahweh and Baal that this mission served to provoke. Elijah took the dead son in his arms, not even thinking about the the purity of touching a, a, a dead body, took him up the upper room, and he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? He doesn't take an adversarial stance, but his heart is broken that this, this woman to whom he has brought peace and joy and salvation through his word has now suffered such tremendous calamity that if anything was even greater than what she was suffering before. He knows God's well within his rights to do whatever he will here, that she's not guiltless, that the child is not guiltless. But he finds it odd that he would do it now. How does this figure in to the strategy for bringing down Baal worship? There's something different here from the pattern of Yahweh speaking to Elijah And Elijah speaking the word. Here Elijah takes the role of an intercessor, a mediator, a defense attorney, which will become a a role of the prophets, mediating on behalf of the widow and her son. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. Wow! (laughs) 
And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Do we even think that that's what we're doing in prayer? (laughs) That we have exactly the same right Elijah does to come into the presence of God and that he listens to us? That's exactly what he did here. He God listened to Elijah and did what Elijah said. Not as a servant, but as a kind king. And as a result, he gives the child back to his mother and says, See, your son lives. And the widow acknowledges his credentials. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. If we had more time, we would go into... Uh, greater detail, the uh, parallel to this in John chapter, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 7. I'll just read it and you can get some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the echoes yourself as I read it. Soon afterward, verse 11, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A Great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. Like Elijah, Jesus had compassion on her. But unlike Elijah, it was his compassion immediately and directly that could raise him from the dead. Jesus didn't intercede. Jesus didn't ask God to raise him from the dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. It was he to whom Elijah prayed. It was he himself standing before them who directly raised the dead. Like the widow in 1 Kings and the widow in Luke 7, Lazarus and his sisters were characters in this unfolding plot. And Jesus was going to face not just the prophets of Baal, not just Baal, a mere idol, but Satan himself in his conquest of Canaan. The whole episode elicited Martha's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the one who will raise the dead in the last day. And that was more important than not letting Lazarus die. See, the the story goes marching on, marching toward the conquest of Canaan. And Jesus, our Savior, redraws Israel around himself. He reconquers Canaan. He drives the serpent out of the temple, and he himself becomes the temple, and all who are in him, Jew and Gentile, are fed. Moses failed to keep the people loyal to Yahweh. 
the priests failed, the kings failed, and even the prophets couldn't keep Israel ultimately from going into exile. That's how the story in, in, the, in, the, in Kings ends. But Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, has brought us from exile to exodus. Our intercessor is not only the prophet who prays for us, but the Lord of life who holds the keys of death and hell in his hands. And so James could say, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much and use Elijah as an example. An example for us. If Elijah's prayer was effectual, how much more confidence do we have after one greater than Elijah has crushed the serpent's head? Let's pray. Father, you have so many riches in your storehouse that we have not even we have not even received because we have not asked. We thank you that you care for us to such an extent that even when harm does come to us, even when death comes to us, it doesn't have the last word. We thank you that there is no power, death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor principalities nor powers, things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation that is able to separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.